All right, Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah chapter 13. The goal, if possible, is to finish Jeremiah 13 in this hour. Then the next hour, we're going to try. There's no way we're going to be able to do it in a, in a true way, but we're going to, the next four chapters are like four separate messages. So we're going to at least try to identify what the four messages are, maybe a basic idea between each one. And then... Uh, I don't say that we're going to just then jump immediately to 18 tonight, but at least maybe we'll get a kind of an overview of the next four chapters in the next hour. That's the goal. But we got to finish chapter 13, and there's a lot of uh, issues to deal with. Now, uh, late last night, I did like an hour and a half sermon review on a sermon on Jeremiah 13. And uh, again, they most sermons seem to take the approach of kind of breaking Jeremiah 13 down into like three or four main sections, right? And then they kind of put everything in those sections. And I can understand why, because we know verses 1 through 11 deals with what? Chapter 13, verses 1 through 11 deals with what issue? The garment, right? The garment, okay? So that's a big one, right? Uh, that, that some will then look at the the bottles. Now, uh, the one we reviewed last night actually referred to the next section as bottles, so that was interesting because that's what we called it. And then they kind of go to the leopard and the uh, Ethiopian, right? That's and they kind of just kind of break it down into like three major sections. We broke it down into far more than that. We, I'm not saying ours is perfect, but the main reason I emphasize breaking it down into smaller sections is because I think chapter 13 marks a, a significant change in the book, right? Because for 12 chapters, we're getting kind of a typical prophetic narrative. You know, God is upset with you. This is what you've done. This is what you're doing. This is what's going to happen. And it's kind of, it's kind of very straightforward. We may get caught up a little bit in some of the poetic language, some of that. But chapter 13, something dramatically changes. What happens in 13 that's very different than the pre- previous 12 chapters? Basically, it turns into a, a one object lesson after another object lesson. So for me, I wanted us, especially from a hermeneutical standpoint, and just trying to see, remember, one of the things that make Jeremiah a difficult book is all of his literary styles, Right? We've got everything from poetry to narrative to, we've got, we got so much going on, prophetic, we've got all of these things. So when we get to something that changes dramatically, I'm like, we need to focus on this. So I wanted to focus on each object that is utilized because we know the positives and negatives of using objects, right? For, for a pastor to use an object lesson or an illustration, we know of the positives and negatives. Now in this case, Jeremiah is using the object lessons because God is telling him to. So obviously, if, there, if, if it goes wrong, it's not because God was wrong to use the object lessons. It's because the people are not getting it, right? So it's, it's on the people in that particular case. Now, I know we can get to all kinds of theological discussions there, but you get the idea. But I wanted to look at it. So for me, I focused on the object, the object, the object, the object. Most other preachers kind of like, they kind of see the object, but they kind of look more at what's the lesson in this? What's the application in this? And I haven't focused as much on application because I just want to know how these objects are being used. And we know one of the dangers for us as Bible students, when we open up a chapter where it's kind of, it's either parable, it's illustration, 
or it's an object lesson, or it's a picture, quote-unquote type, or anything along those lines, the, the danger for us as Bible students is that we have a tendency to do what? We get so caught up in, in like, oh, wait, this could represent this, and this could represent this, and I wonder what this means, and I wonder what this means, that we get so caught up in that that we miss what? The lesson itself, all right? So in some ways, maybe, maybe we were doing that a little bit, but I so wanted to just see how these, I wanted to figure out the object and try to figure out what the main lesson was. I, 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 I did. But so I've, we broke it down a little bit more, right? If you remember, we broke it down the following ways. Uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 11 is the garment. There's no question there. Everybody can see that. Everyone can agree, right? Chapter 13, 1 through 11. Now, I did not realize there's much disagreement on what the garment is. I thought there was pretty much agreement, but there's not. Some believe it's like a linen garment that, you know, was right against the body. Others believe it was simply a belt. Yeah, so, okay, well, but I mean, a belt typically goes outside of the garment, right? So, okay, but it's a bind. So, but I, the, the picture some commentaries wanted is it was a garment right next to the body because Israel was to be next to God, and it was a priestly garment because Israel was supposed to be next to God and worship, and then God was going to remove them from him. Like, they tried to make a bigger picture out of it. The belt is still would be close, but it's not the same type of thing. Now, if it's a belt used by the priest, then it would be maybe the similar picture. But, okay, so we could, but again, once again, see, we could, you can spend, you could spend hours trying to debate what it was. Correct? Well, we got we to gotta just get the main point there, if that makes sense, all right? Then chapter 13, 12 through 14, we call that, the bottles. Now, some emphasizes the filled bottles is how the sermon we reviewed last night referred to them. But okay, we get the bottles. Then chapters 15 through 16. Okay, the stumbling travelers. Everybody remember that, right? They stumble, travel, darkness. We get the idea. Then 17 through 20, the flock. All right, the flock. Verse 21. The woman in labor, verse uh, 22 was the skirts, right? Verse 23, the Ethiopian and the leopard, verses 24 through 25, the chaff, and then verse 26 through 27, nudity is what we're calling it. So we broke it down even more so because I want to see how these objects are being used. So we're just going to go back through this quickly, see if we can, if we can uh, try to finish up this chapter. And, and we've got, really we've got two major issues facing us, kind of, maybe more than that, but we've got one big one, one really serious issue that we have to work on. But let's start in chapter 13 and let's see what we can do here, all right? Starting in chapter 13, verse 1, all right? We're going to go back and just remind ourselves of the garment. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but we'll get the basic idea, all right? Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord unto me, all right? Go and get thee a linen girdle. Put it upon thy loins and put it not in water. Right? So I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord and put it on my loins. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time saying, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which is upon thy loins, and arise, 
go to Euphrates and hide it there in the hole of the rock. Now, it seems, and we had an emailer who pointed this out, the sermon last night pointed this out, that seems to be about a 300-mile journey, which is crazy. That is crazy, all right? Many say Euphrates, now, I I don't know if this is true or not. Um, I don't know if the, I don't think the Bible dictionary, look up, uh, if you have a Bible dictionary next to you, look up Euphrates. Yeah, Bible dictionary. And see if, uh, if, if, the, if there's anything in the entra- entry for Euphrates that connects the Euphrates to Babylon. I believe it does. That, that's what most uh, sermons say, but I don't know if we have something that would be 100%. Okay, there we go. So Euphrates is, uh, obviously kind of runs next to, runs through Babylon. All right. So in a roundabout way, this would be connected to, obviously, Babylon. All right? At least in, to some level. Right? Now, you could obviously connect it to a number of locations. All right? But everybody see that? What page was that uh, paragraph? 421. And read it again so that everyone can hear. There you go. All right. So that at least connects it to some way, shape, form, which, make, which makes sense, right? Okay, so if we follow the picture, then the, the, the linen garment, the garment, the girdle, the belt, whatever we want to call it, is obviously represents whom? Israel, Judah, right? I think we're going to see here in a minute that I think both are mentioned, right? Then they're going to be, in a sense, they were supposed to be close to God, right? And they're going to be taken... And they're going to be carried far, a far distance away to Babylon. So he says to go to Euphrates, hide it there in the hole of the rock. So I went and hid it by Euphrates. I think some commentaries say in Euphrates, right? As the Lord commanded me, and it came to pass after many days, and the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to Euphrates, take the girdle from thence, which I commanded thee to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates to dig it up, Uh, and took the girdle from the place where I had hid it. And behold, the girdle was marred, and it was profitable for nothing. Now, some of the commentaries or or handbooks, and even preachers kind of do the same thing. They kind of describe this like, and I think even uh, maybe Haley's Bible handbook does this, as if like everyone was watching. And I, and I don't know exactly where they're getting that, right? If he walked 300 miles, I don't think everyone was following him, right? So if he went back to dig it up, everybody, some of the preachers almost describe it like everyone's standing there watching. He digs it up and they're like, ooh, like, I, I don't know where they're getting that. Like, that, I understand that you would be like, the, the problem is then what's the point of the, the object lesson, right? Typically the object lesson is for an audience, Right? So who is, I know we could get into a discussion there. It's just some of the preachers just kind of get caught up in this. Like everyone was watching. It's not like everybody's like, hey, hey, you got, you got your TV on? Hey, you got your iPad turned into the YouTube channel? Because we're going to watch Jeremiah walk back. I mean, I don't, I don't know where, why. who would have been following him to Euphrates? I mean, was he to bring the garment back and show everyone? I don't, I don't know. It is a weird kind of situation, but that's, that's irregardless. For us, we know what it's picturing, right? So he goes and digs it up, and what does he find? 
Okay, he goes, then when I went to Euphrates and digged and took the girdle from the place where I hid it, and behold, the girdle was marred and it was profitable for nothing. So it is marred. It is ruined. Now we kind of get an explanation here, right? This is when we get a clear explanation. And the word of the Lord came into me saying, thus saith the Lord, after this manner, will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Now, some pastors point this out. It's not so much about marring them. It's about doing what? Bringing down their pride. Everybody see that? 13.9? Okay, right? I will ruin their pride. So some say it's not so much about destroying them, it's about destroying their pride. Now, of course, they're going to suffer. So however you want to, to focus there, he's going after their pride. And some, in chapter 13, really turns Jeremiah 13 into more of a message about the dangers of pride and God hating pride. And we could, we could kind of focus on that. Yeah, yeah, right. So, I mean, they're still going to be marred, but uh, the, the, I guess, well, that we could get into some practical questions. We'll, we may rev- come back to that in a minute. Just remember 13.9. You may want to just write that down to the side because we may come back to that if we can for a more practical point. All right, verse 10. This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart, walk after other gods... All right, I want you to, so I told you to put 13.9 to the side, put 13.10 to the side. And then I want you to write this somewhere, right? Two major sins that we want to make focus on from a practical standpoint. The sin of pride and the sin of idolatry. The sin of pride and the sin of idolatry. There is no question when we're reading the book of Jeremiah, which sin is mentioned over and over and over and over and over and over. Idolatry, no question about it. So we know that. Pride is not mentioned a lot, but we may see evidences of pride throughout. So those are two major sins, pride and idolatry. I want to go on a full-blown, like, chase that, but right now we're just going to set it aside. All right, 13.9, 13.10, I want you to write those two verses aside and write down the sins of pride and idolatry, Okay. Don't let me forget that, because if we can, we're going to come back to that at some point. All right? I, I want to do it now, but we want to try to at least see if we can bring the chapter to a conclusion. All right? So let's read verse 10 again. This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them shall even be as the girdle which is good for nothing. All right? Good for nothing. Everybody see that? All right. Verse 11, For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah. He's mentioning both there, correct? Saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear. Okay, now... We have, a, we have another, so I want you to consider the sin of pride and the sin of idolatry. Verse 11 starts where we're going to start having, you know, our brains are going to start unraveling and we're going to start having some theological issues here, right? Because this is, this is confounding 
and crazy to me, all right? God seems to say here that he had some desires for Israel and Judah, or you could just say Israel together, right? What was God's desire for them? Write them out. There's what, three mentioned there? Okay, they would be my people. Okay, a people for my name. Is that, is that a good way of saying it? For a people and for a name. And for a praise. And for his glory. God had four desires for them. All right? Is that, is that fair? Is that a, a, does everyone agree with that? Now, the NIV may break it down a little different. How does the NIV break it down? Okay. And praise and honor. Okay. All right, so we're still going to break it down four ways. So God had a desire for the nation. So God, we can, can we agree God chose the nation? Yes, right? I mean, he's the one who picked them, Yes. Right? So he picked them and he had four desires for them. Hey, that you're going to be my people. That's obviously, he chooses them to be his people. Hey, you're going to be for my name or for my renown. In other words, you're going to be known as my people. My name is going to be connected to you. you. When people see you, they should not see your name. They should see God's name. Right? Second or third? For his praise and honor or glory. Now, can we say at this point in Jeremiah, has those four things come to pass? No, it clearly says it has not. And why did it not come to pass? They would not. Well, I don't, did they ever pull it off? Okay, clearly they haven't, right? Now, here's the question. Now, Here's the theological question of questions. How can God have a desire that isn't fulfilled? When God chose them, did he know that his desire wouldn't be fulfilled? Well, how can that happen? Can God desire something that isn't fulfilled? Now, if God's desire is not fulfilled, you've got only a couple of explanations. Why is God's desire not fulfilled? What are some possible explanations for God's desire not being fulfilled? What are our options? He can't fulfill it. Okay, he can't. He chooses not to. We are greater than God, so nothing, something, something is stopping God's desire from being fulfilled. So that kind of goes with God can't, but God can't. He doesn't. I'm, I'm still going to say something greater than God is stopping him, which would be bizarre. Stephen kept saying, it's not yet fulfilled, but it will be. Now, could God have worked in the hearts of Israel and Judah that they would have fulfilled his desire. Sure. So he does it. Now, well, okay, well, that's, I don't understand. Right? Because if all he had to do was work in them, would they be in this situation? No. 
What's the result? Every time they don't fulfill these desires, what is the end result? Almost every single time. Death. People die. Like, uh, you've got to be, that's got to trouble you. If that doesn't trouble you, then you've been, you've been so brainwashed to just read the Bible and go, oh, everything's good. Praise God. No, it should bother you. Human beings are dying because they don't fulfill the will of God, but God supposedly is the one who can make them fulfill his will. That is troubling beyond any. Look, Christians are never troubled by it because we're just trained to just go, Hey, you know, let's just have a little Sunday school lesson and let's, you know, get to the potluck. Nobody wants to deal with these troubling issues. It's usually people outside of Christianity going, don't you realize how utterly whacked your story is? And then we're just like, well, you just don't have faith. Well, I'm, come on. It's troubling, is it not? So when it comes to Israel, I, I think we can ask a, a really important question. Will that desire and will ever be fulfilled? Christianity is divided on that question, is it not? Some, some say it will never be fulfilled. And God took that desire for Israel and he gave it to whom? The church. Well, then that means God's will either changed or his will was so thwarted he needed a plan B. That, those are, that's some troubling theological issues, right? Okay? And many in the reform world believe just that. Right? Because the reform world tends to be what when it comes to eschatology? Amillennial. Right? That's troubling, right? And this is what gets me in trouble with the reform world because I'm, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Now, the only other option is those things will happen. Israel will be his people. They will be for his honor and his name. They will be for his praise. They will be for his glory. And the reason all of those things are going to happen has nothing to do with what they can do, should do, will do. God will ultimately do it. And we say that that's kind of what's promised where? In the new covenant. Now, let's do this really quick. Remember the passages in Jeremiah and Ezekiel? Right? We've got one in Jeremiah and one in Ezekiel referring to the new testament or new covenant, right? Let's find those passages. Remember I told you when we covered this about two or three weeks ago how important these passages would be? All right, well, now we get to put that to the test. Now we get to put this directly to the... I know we're kind of backing up and we're not advancing this as fast as we should, but this is so important, right? Okay, so we know where the one in Jeremiah is, right? Chapter 31, right? Okay, let's look at everything he says about... Uh, you, you remember those four things? Everybody remember those four things? Let's see if there's promises in the new covenant that seem to be very parallel to these four things that God's desire is for Israel, okay? Let's see if it works. I'm not saying it's going to, right? I haven't run, I haven't run this test yet. We're going to run this test in real time. Right? So I don't want to in any way, shape, or form saying what I think is going to happen. 
I, I have a hope of what's getting ready to happen, but I could be very wrong, all right? So here we go. Dropping everything, okay? Here we go. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Stop right here. Go back to Jeremiah 13. Does he not say uh, how Israel and Judah, what his desires were for both? Does he not mention both? How, how does he describe them in Jeremiah 13? Ooh. How does he mention them in Jeremiah 31? House of Israel and house of Judah. Ooh, oh, oh, okay, wait, wait. I Do, do you want to go, ooh, yet, or do you want to wait? Okay, you want to wait? Okay. But that, that's at least a kind of a, um, like at least a, a little bit of an, ooh, right? Maybe, or maybe a little bit of a, hmm. Like, I, you guys just say nothing, right? Okay, and some churches, then we start clapping at this point, okay? There's got to be, okay, are we getting a little bit excited? Okay, may, maybe, okay, maybe. All right, all right, here we go. All right, verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers and the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, Although I was a husband, husband unto them, saith the Lord. Now, does Jeremiah 13 clearly describe them breaking this? Here's what God desired for them. Did they keep it? No. So now, oh, we have some more similarity, do we not? Okay, not an ooh yet. Not, not an even an ah yet. Okay. All right. Well, but they break it. That's the point, right? Jeremiah 13, did they keep it? Okay, all right. You, you may want to be doing cross-references in your Bible to Jeremiah 31, back to Jeremiah 13. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts, write it in their hearts, and, and, and will be their God, and they shall be my... Ooh, okay, not, not even... A, ooh, okay, okay, good. Genesis is at least playing along, Okay. Genesis is playing along. Everyone else is like, we don't care. Genesis at least will get $50 for this. Okay, right? Okay, I mean, someone else is going to have to pay you. But okay, all right? My people, that's, is that pretty close? All right? And they shall teach no man every, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them until the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their sins and I will remember their sin no more. Now, it's not perfect, but it's kind of close, right? Now, we've got one other passage to look at that will may add more to this. Where's the other one? Ezekiel, right? Remember, Ezekiel goes into even more detail, does it not? Okay, y'all look, see who can find it first. Okay, well, I was looking at a different passage, but we'll go with that. When Ezekiel what? Okay. All right, 37.26. Let's go at, look at it. Ezekiel 37.26. Anybody got a different one? We'll go with this one for now. All right. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. This is your uh, Ezekiel 37.26. Uh, moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It should be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Now, if God's putting his sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore, is that going to kind of be connected to glory and praise and name? 
I mean, he's putting, he's going to be right there in the midst of them, right? My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord to sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. It's pretty similar, is it not? They're all going to know him. He's going to be in the midst of them. If he's in the midst of them, he's going to be praise and glory, and Israel's going to be forever linked with him. Has that ever occurred? No. Meaning, if it's future, then God's will for Israel will ultimately be fulfilled. Right? I mean, right? Does everyone agree? Is there any other passage in Ezekiel that mentions covenant that you think we should look at? Here's your, here's your chance to draw any more correlation. All right, someone said 34. Is it 30? I think we started in 23, I believe. 34, 23. Right? Everybody okay with that one? Yes? All right, 34, 23. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will make with them a covenant of peace. I will cause the evil beast to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places round about my hills a blessing, and I will cause the showers to come down in the season, and, and there shall be showers of blessing and the tree of the field shall yield her fruit and the earth shall yield her increase and they shall be safe in their land and know I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of the yoke and delivered them out of the, the hand of, of those that served themselves on them. And they shall no more be a prey to the heathen, neither shall the beast of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely and none shall make them afraid." And I will raise up for them a plant of renown, and they shall no more uh, be consumed with hunger in the land, neither bear the shame of the heathen, heathen any more. Thus shall they know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith the Lord, and yea, my flock, the flock of my passage, are men, and I am your God. Oh, see. I, and ye, my flock, the flock of my pasture are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. That sounds very similar to those four things, does it not? So go back to Jeremiah 13. Go back to Jeremiah 13. Right, Jeremiah 13. I want you to look carefully again to see the verse that we just read. Uh, okay, go to uh, verse, was it 10? Oh, not 10, uh, verse 11. Oh, verse 11, okay. Verse 11, Jeremiah 13, 11. I switched Bibles and all of a sudden I can't find the verse. Jeremiah 13, 11, right? Because all of a sudden it looks all different. For the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for praise and for a glory, but they would not hear. 
Now, can we all agree, historically, they have refused to hear? Yes? God has poured judgment after judgment after judgment. He's given them law after law after law, and it's only led to sin, death, and condemnation. Everyone can say amen. What is the solution to their problem? A new covenant. A new covenant, right? God is going to make a new covenant. And that covenant does not say what they are to do. The new covenant is about what God is going to do in them. And then we read about this in the book of Romans. We read this in the book of Romans. Well, the only reason I'm avoiding the new heart is everyone will say, oh, God's going to give them a new heart. Then they can obey the old covenant. He will give them a new heart. I'm not going to deny that because the text clearly says. But what I'm saying is I'm emphasizing that, that when, it's, when it's, he's going to give them a new heart, it's all about what God is doing. And it's still future. Obviously, they still don't have a new heart, right? And everyone thinks that we do. But if we do, then we would be obedient. Because, because all the passages that talks about them getting a new heart, they obey perfectly. Right? Because a new heart would obey perfectly. So, but I want you to just see that all of the judgment, all of it, does not fix the problem. What fixes the problem is what God will do. Everyone look in Romans where it talks about all Israel will be saved. I cannot stress the importance of that passage. See who finds it first. Who finds it first? I could read the whole thing here. Okay, good, because we, that immediately wants us to start in verse 25, right? Okay, because look what happens in Romans eleven twenty-five. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. Blindness, in part, happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, the fullness of the Gentiles has not happened yet, right? That's our, that's our understanding. We're still in that process where the Gentiles are still being grafted in or brought in, yes? In the meantime, Israel is blind, right? They're blinded. And so, but then look what happens in verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my, with with whom? Unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. I want you to circle verse 29. And guess what you should put next to that? Israel. How do you know the gifts and calling of God are without repentance? Meaning, God is not going to change his mind. How do you know that? Israel. 
And those four things that he had a desire for them, what are those four things? They, he, they would be his people, for his name, for his praise, and for his glory. Has it happened yet? Not anywhere close. But it's going to happen. And that proves what? God's will will be done. And that his calling and election are without repentance. And if his calling and election of Israel is without repentance, his calling and election of you is without repentance. And how does God accomplish his will? Irrevocable. I love that. Okay, that's, that's one time the NIV does something good, okay? All right, irrevocable. That's a good thing, right? Now, I, here, I, I want you to hear me. How does God accomplish all of this? He does it through grace. Everyone thinks he does it by somehow changing you or infusing you so that you do it. It doesn't work that way. Christianity has so jacked up the story. Uh, because all America, whenever we see failure, 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 sin, 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 what do we, what's the go-to answer for everything? We need some discipline. You need some, you need some, you know, uh, accountability. You need to do better. You need to read your Bible more. You need to go to church more. We need 15 more small groups. You need to go to the potluck. You need this. You need small groups. Everything. That's never been the answer. Why has that never been the answer? Well, one, it requires us to be involved. Now, I don't know who in here thinks that they're the most godly. Like if we were, if we were to look around, who in here thinks that they're the most godly? Come on, well, some, one of you knows you're better than everyone else. I clearly don't, okay? Well, y'all, know, y'all know all of where my dead bodies are buried. So, so that doesn't have, so y'all know it's not me. Right? So, come on, which one of you? Well, whoever, if we took a, if we took a, if we took a poll right now and elected, you know, the, the most godly, whoever it was, right, whoever it may be, <laughs> it's not on that side of the church. Okay. Whichever side of the church it is, we could take that person who is the, the pinnacle of morality and godliness, right? And according to the rest of us, we may have to turn our eyes from their great glory and morality and going, I, I am not like they are. But you take that person and you lay down their best works and you put it next to God's law. Now, they may put them next to me and go, oh, man, I'm better than the pastor. That really doesn't do you much good, okay? Because you don't get to go before God and go, I was better than the pastor. And he'd be like, who isn't? Right? But you put their works next to the law. Failure. So what we we always think our issue is law is the solution. So we use the law and then here's how we, this is the American Christian answer. Let's say it's Stephen who just keeps messing up. Our answer is, obviously Stephen's not. A Christian. Now, does that fix it? Well, the hope is that Stephen will be like, oh, I'm so sorry, you're right, I'm not a Christian. And then he gets saved. 
And that's supposedly that's supposed to fix the problem. But is it going to fix the problem? Stephen's still going to be falling short. Now, as long as you stop falling short on the sins that gets everyone's bothered, right? Because there, we all know there's a million sins he can commit that's not even going to do what? Eh, no big deal. No big deal. No big deal. No big deal. Now, there's some sins that'd be the end of you. Right? So you got to pick. So it's so weird the way we do so, but we always think the solution is. In Israel's case, those four things, I don't care if they would have been judged for a thousand years. I don't care if he would have killed everyone out, everyone. He could have killed them all. I mean, look, did God not do that already once? He wiped out the entire earth except for how many people on the ark? Eight people. What happened? I mean, the boat, the, the cruise comes to an end and Noah is drunk with no clothes on. Right? And then something goes on in the tent that still nobody knows exactly what happened in that tent. Lots of speculation. Something good didn't go on there. And then from that point on, it's been since then. Because I don't care. For only way to get rid of it is to wipe out everyone. Because we still are sinners. So then what's the solution? Killing it, unless you kill everyone, then there isn't any other solution. Now we think the solution is God reaches down, changes the heart, so that we now can stop sinning, and now we can be a people. For his name. Now we can be a people for his honor. Now we can be a people for his praise. Now we can be a people for his glory. Right? Isn't that the way it's preached? Go do that. And we're like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And then no matter how hard you do it, you're always going to fall short. Because the only thing that would be worthy of his glory, praise, name, if we're going to look at it from a workspace, would be perfection. But how do we become How do sinners become a people of his name, for his praise, for his glory, and for his honor? Because we become trophies of grace. Because God saves us, and who gets all the glory and honor in the name? He does, because that's not according to our works, but the covenant that he made, and it's a covenant of grace. God's God's gifts and repentance are without, God's gifts and calling is without repentance because of Israel. If God replaced Israel, why would he not replace you? Are we any better than Israel? Now, you cannot say that in 99% of churches, everyone would lose their mind on you right there. We've got the spirit. We're we're new creatures. We can do it. And then they say that, and they talk such a big game. But are they ever willing to let you get full access to their entire life? No, because if we started doing a little digging, you would be like, yeah, you talk a big game condemning everyone else. Come on. Now, sooner or later, sometimes the people talking the big game, sometimes it gets exposed. It may never get exposed, but I can guarantee you this. The person you think is the most godly, put their works against God's law. Failure. It may not be the scandalous kind, 
but it's there. Their failure here, you're like, well, what's the solution? What's the solution? I'm telling you, that's the only solution. I go back to Jeremiah 13. We spent a lot of time on that. That's okay. But I think that's so important to see because that connects it with all the other things we've been talking about, right? Right? If you've been listening and paying attention to that long discussion we had about the new covenant, there you have it. All right? Now, What do we do? Okay, let's see if we can at least get the bottles out of the way quickly. All right, so there's the girdle, and there's the, in that section dealing with the girdle, the, the cloth, the linen garment, the belt, whatever the world it was, we know what it represents, right? The belt is Israel and Judah. They're going to be carried away. They're going to put in captivity to mark their pride, right? Because God had a desire for them that they could not meet, and under the old covenant, They can never meet it because it demands their action. And the only hope is a new covenant, a covenant in which God does everything. Everything. Does that make sense? Amen? Okay. Verse 12. Therefore thou shalt speak unto them this word. This is starting in verse 12. Now we're going to go from the uh, garment to the bottles. Therefore, thou shalt speak unto them this word. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they shall say unto thee, do we not certainly know that every bottle should be filled with wine? Now let's stop right here. I thought there was universal agreement on this. And then last night reviewing a sermon, guess what? There's not agreement on this. All right. Some commentaries understand. So God says, hey, all the bottles are going to be filled. And when we say bottles, don't think of a glass bottle. This would be like they're kind of containers that would hold like wine or something along those lines, right? Okay. And he says they're all going to be filled. And then the people respond with, how do they respond there? We know they're all going to be filled. Now, there's two ways of interpreting it, it seems, in preaching. One is the people are just being like a smart aleck teenager. Well, it's a bottle. Of course, that's what happens to a bottle. It gets filled. Come on, man. We know that. Others believe it's not so, it's not so much sar- sar- sarcastic. It's a little kind of, it's almost like an arrogance. And the arrogance is, we're God's people. And the filling of the bottles demonstrates God's blessing. God, of course, God's going to fill the bottles because we're supposed to be blessed. I don't know how you want to interpret it. Okay, we interpreted it the second way uh, last week. You can change your view if you want, but many believe that they're making a reference possibly to Proverbs where it talks about basically that they associate, hey, this is, we're, we're, we're going to be blessed. Of course everything's going to be filled, right? So Jeremiah responds to their kind of little comment and he says what to them? Or God says, okay, all right. He says, then shall thou say unto them, because now they're like, of course everything's going to be filled. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of the land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, saith the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but destroy them. All right, now that's, that's pretty serious. 
Now, we, we talked about, well, wait a minute, why would God fill them with drunkenness, right? And we kind of talked about, once again, God's action. We kind of got a little off track a little bit, but to put it back on track, when he says he's going to fill them with drunkenness, what is he referencing there? Now, well, we got a couple of options. Does the drunkenness represent he's just going to fill them with his wrath and judgment? Or does it mean he's going to fill them with almost a spiritual blindness that they can't even see the truth and they're going to then just basically turn on one another? Does the drunkenness represent just judgment? Or does it represent a judgment of they're going to be like drunk people who cannot see the truth or even perceive the truth. Now, if it's the latter, then we're kind of back to another theological problem, right? Right, if, he fills, if he's filling them with something negative that keeps them from perceiving the truth, then we're right back to why would God do that when all he has to do is not fill them with drunkenness, but to fill them with understanding and faith and repentance. Once again, is this not the never-ending problem we're going to have in Jeremiah? I'm saying the problem always starts way back in Genesis, right? Genesis 1. The minute God created the world, I don't understand what's going on. I want to stop the story right there, right? It's like starting a movie and you know, you know the ending of the movie and you're just like, stop, stop. Don't go downstairs, Right? Don't go, don't go there. You're screaming at the character because you know what's about to happen to them, right? Don't go down a river with an anaconda. Don't get in the water. There's a shark. Whatever the movie is. Don't fall asleep. Freddy is waiting. Whatever the movie may be, right? Well, in Genesis, you're like, stop in the beginning. Stop it right there. Just leave it in the beginning because in the beginning, everything is good. But as soon as you create, it's going to get bad so then why create that which you know is going to get bad and then you can fix the bad how quickly well one you can keep it from getting bad two you can fix the bad five seconds after it was here we are Thousands of years later, and the bad still persists. So why is he filling them with this? Well, all we can say is he's just letting them know you're going to be filled. Whatever, however we want to understand this judgment, they're going to be filled with it. And they're going to crash into one another. And because they're filled with this supposed drunkenness, whatever, however we want to understand the drunkenness, so there is the, the garment, there is the bottles that are going to be filled with basically wine to basically make them drunk is about the only way to understand it, then that immediately takes us to the next section, right? Starting at which verse? Uh, you said 15? Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, yes, 15. Hear ye and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Remember I said there's two major sins that we need to focus on? Idolatry and pride. Here's the pride, right? Give glory to the Lord your God. So they're supposed to give glory because they're supposed to be a people to bring him glory. Remember that, right? 
Before he causes darkness, before your feet stumble upon... Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains. And while you look for light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. Once again, who's doing the action? God. He's going to fill you with drunkenness. You're going to be smashing into one another. And then, hey, you better give God glory because he's going to do what? He's going to turn off the lights and you're going to be doing what? You're going to be stumbling. Now the problem is the only way to avoid the lights going out and the only way to avoid being a stumbling traveler is you've got to do something according to this. What do they have to do? They've got to give glory to God. Now when, if you've been paying a long attention to our never-ending study on law and gospel, that is law. Will they ever give God glory? Now, there's a famous catechism that says our purpose in life is to glorify God. Now, let me ask you a million-dollar question. You ready? This is going to tick off the entire Internet. Can we do that? When you read the catechism that says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, is that law or gospel? That's law. Meaning, as soon as you tell people to give God glory and enjoy him forever, you're giving them something they can't do. And because we can't give him glory, according to Jeremiah, he's going to turn off the lights. So then how will God ever be glorified in us? Well, now we have two possible ways of God receiving glory on us, and and, and one of them is very disturbing, and I don't like it. One of them is very good. God receives glory in us by making us, I'm going to use the phrase again, trophies his grace. He chooses us, elects us, predestinates us, calls us, regenerates us, saves us, imputes the righteousness of Christ to us, and then at that moment we glorify God because what are we? Perfect and holy and obedient in his sight. So God is glorified because we become now instruments of his grace. Because guess why God gets all the glory there? Because there's nothing we do. Remember that that's the whole thing? If by some, Paul makes it in the book of Romans, if by some reason it was by works, we could do what? Boast. But I can't boast that I lived a life that gave God glory and that I enjoyed him forever I can only testify that in my practice I did not glorify God and I enjoyed myself forever. But in God, because of Christ, I glorify him. So that is a law that we can never fulfill. Now that's one way it's God's glory. What's the other way God receives glory in us? This is a disturbing one. 
does God receive glory in those whom he puts in hell and judges? Nobody wants to say yes. One did. That's disturbing, right? Now, this comes to, uh, again, the book of Romans. And some refer to this as double predestination, right? Some refer to this in other terms, that God creates some for destruction. And he will be glorified because what's glorified in judgment? His holiness and righteousness. That's disturbing beyond all comprehension, is it not? But in here, how do you become stumbling? What's the answer to Scott not being a stumbling traveler? Is you better glorify God or he's going to turn out the lights. The only problem is they can never glorify God. So they're going to stumble around in darkness. Is Israel still stumbling around in darkness? Wait, what? In fact, I think Paul said blindness has come upon Israel for what reason? For us to be brought in. That means God's turned the entire nation into stumbling travelers. And they will continue to stumble until God saves them. All right, we'll have to stop right there. I don't have any easy, I don't have any profound thing to say there other than the four things God wanted for Israel and Judah. They can't do. God will do it for them and in them through the new covenant. And that new covenant has not been fulfilled yet in any way, shape, or form. And what God calls for us to do, we can't do. God has to do it for us. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Help us continue to see the profound principles and concepts found in Jeremiah chapter 13. We may be going slower than we should to finish the study, but Lord, I pray that we'll be more concerned with the truths discovered than the place we are in the book. And I hope that we continue to commit ourselves for at least the rest of this summer to learning as much as we can uh, before we stop. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus and God's people said,